you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to find Acts chapter 19. Last week we hit a little bit of kind of uh, almost the crescendo of the book of Acts. All right, and, and the weird thing is I think we are often uh, used to seeing crescendos happen at the end of something. Uh, oftentimes in first century writings, they would lay things out a very specific way. Uh, and, and in this case, in the book of Acts, it really is the center of the book. The physical center of the book is also the theological center of the book. It's what Luke is trying to get across. And we looked at that last week. Um, this idea that the new kingdom, the new family, the new way of living for God is for everybody. All right, it's not just for a select group. It doesn't matter what their ethnic background is. It is equally available to everybody. Now, unfortunately, that message really doesn't sink in. Uh, and to be honest, in some ways, this message uh, is still difficult for Christians and churches today. Like, we still struggle with this idea that it is for everybody. We have people that want to be uh, gatekeepers of who, who this is available to. And, and, but God has made this very clear in the book of Acts. This is for everyone. And most would agree that this is, uh, this is forever on a doctrinal and theological level. But I think the way that we live it out, that's where we fall short. I don't think anybody's going to go around saying the gospel's not for everybody. But then the way that we interact with people at church, the way that we interact with people in the community, the way we talk about other people, that actually tips our hand to showing what we truly believe. So we say on one hand that we believe this is for everybody, but do we truly live our life in that type of a way? So we have five weeks left in the book of Acts. Uh, and that may seem weird because we've done about 11 weeks so far, uh, and we, are, we hit the halfway mark last week. Uh, but I'll give you a little bit of, of a hint. The rest of the book has sort of a repetitive theme, okay? And I'm not saying this to, to diminish it. I actually am going to encourage you guys to go and, and read this as we finish this out. Uh, but what happens here is basically Paul travels to a new city. He tells them about Jesus. Some people like him. A lot of people don't. They get mad. They beat him up. They threaten to kill him. And he leaves and goes on to the next town. And this like repeats and repeats and repeats. And, and, and there's more to it. I'm, I'm not diminishing this, the second half of the book. Uh, but what we want to do here is we want to take these last five weeks and kind of dive into first two specific stories uh, that we kind of see. Uh, and then we're going to take the last three weeks and kind of look at how does this whole thing wrap up for Paul. Uh, what happens there? And really the last week looking at the idea that, you know what, that it, it doesn't wrap up. Like actually to give you a little bit of a, a, a spoiler here, it doesn't. The book purposely doesn't really have an ending. Because we are meant to still be part of this and see ourselves in it. So it's kind of the next five weeks here as we finish this up. Uh, this series really has been uh, eye-opening for me. Anytime I, I'm taking a step back uh, and looking at God's big story, uh, what he has done, what he is doing, what he wants to do, uh, it always gives me a refreshing vision of how I should be living right here and now. All right, and so I, I've loved doing this. I hope that today can do that for all of us, uh, but I think it takes some intentionality uh, on our part of actually desiring that. When we walk through the doors, and I, I want to desire that this would, would impact me, this would change me. So uh, let's be ready. Let's, let's desire God to speak to us and to change us today. All right, so if you would, would you stand with me, uh, if you're willing, if you're able, as we just kind of read our passage for today. We are in Acts 19, and I'm going to be starting in verse 11. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. 
Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It's a bad day. All right. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. God, I pray that this morning that we would, uh, that our eyes would be opened. Lord, that we would, we would hear from you in a new way, in a fresh way. Lord, that our lives would be changed uh, because of this time that we spend together. Lord, we ask that. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Uh, we are jumping ahead about four chapters from where we were last week. We were in Acts 15 last week. Uh, if you missed that, I want to encourage you to go back. Uh, it really was, like we said, the center theologically of this book. And really, I think, I'm going to say this, especially if you have been hurt uh, by church in the past, if, if your experiences uh, have not been great walking through the doors of churches, I want to encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, we really just challenged ourselves of what church should look like and what it should feel like for people that walk through the doors. Uh, and this is really what the Gospels is about. Um, but we, we've been going through this series, uh, and I want to encourage you, take time this week, be reading some of those chapters that we missed. Uh, but b- before we move into our passage for today, I want to quickly touch on kind of what happened in those four chapters. Last week, beginning of Acts 15, we saw this all happen. Uh, this international movement that is from every social class, ethnic background, financial bracket that you could think of. Uh, there was a reason most communities were really only made up of one of those categories at that time. You had, you had a lot in common with the people that you spent time with because it was just easier. Everyone in your category, whether this is ethnically or socioeconomically, like financially or um, just your background, it's so much easier because you view the world so much the same. So when you get together and talk with people, it's easier. And we see this today. We talk about the polarization and how people are being driven apart from each other and how uh, you end up spending time with people that just think the exact same way as you. Like It's not a new thing, but it's definitely not a biblical thing. We are, we are told to spend time with people that are different from us. We are modeled this. Uh, and, and this Christian community was breaking all of those barriers, but problems were coming up because of it. Well, they, they sort things out and decide on some basic things that will help the community live together uh, and hopefully not needlessly make people upset. Well, following this, the council sends the letter back to the church in Antioch, giving them this instruction. Uh, and, and Paul wants to continue to go out and share the good news, go to new cities and towns and check in on the ones that he has visited. So him and Barnabas, who he has been his companion from the beginning, they start to make plans to go. And this is kind of what is often called to as like Paul's second missionary journey. All right, now John Mark went with them on the first journey. All right, and and, and Barnabas wants to bring his nephew, John Mark, again on this one. And Paul is totally against it. Because on their first journey, only a few cities in, 
John Mark left. And we aren't really given a whole lot of reason why or anything that was going on. But at this point, Paul and Barnabas are, are, are in a disagreement. Paul is like, I absolutely do not want to bring him with me. And Barnabas is absolutely there for John Mark. And which is not, not surprising considering that, that Barnabas, uh, his nickname, kind of the meaning of his name is son of encouragement. Right? Like, how would you like to have that nickname? That'd be amazing. I want to just be known for being, like, so encouraging. I, I love that. And he doesn't want to give up uh, on John Mark. And this, this turns into a massive fight, and really they end up separating. They agree to disagree. Paul leaves and finds a new companion uh, to go with him on this one. Barnabas leaves with John Mark. And we don't see Paul and Barnabas together again. Now, whether or not they actually are, we, we don't have everything written down here. But we don't see them together on these journeys uh, again. Now, I don't know if Paul handled this right or wrong. We actually really aren't showing that in Scripture. We're just kind of given the situation. But in Paul's letter, uh, 2 Timothy, which is considered to be the last letter that Paul writes, the very last one, the last words that he writes down for people, uh, in this final goodbye, he actually asks for John Mark to come and be with him because he finds him valuable. All right, and all this to say, I wanted to say this this morning, reconciliation is important. All right, there are times in our life where we are going to screw up, someone else is going to screw up, it's going to cause a rift in the relationship, and I think that if we want to call ourselves the church and we want to stand up here and preach that we can be reconciled to God no matter what we've done, in some way we have to at least attempt this in our lives. All right, so that's, uh, I, I had debated just taking that passage and doing a week on it, but we wanted to kind of move into some other things. But I didn't want us to miss that. I think that's incredibly important uh, that we understand and kind of see that there. Uh, and, and all of this, Paul's journeys now, uh, that's kind of what the next four chapters, he starts in on these journeys, and they, goes from city to city. These take a while. Uh, I think it's easy to read this and think that he's just going for one day, doing this big revival, moves on to the next one, moves on. Uh, really, these journeys span uh, quite a bit of time. All in all, Paul travels probably somewhere about 10,000 miles on foot over these missionary journeys. Like, that's it, crazy. If you think about that, that's going across the U.S., across the U.S., across the U.S. Like, that, that's kind of crazy what he's doing here. Um, and, and it probably was about 8 to 10 years of his life that he was doing this. We see some spots where he ends up in a town and they say, and then he stayed for a year or for two years. Or he stayed and he preached on this many Sabbaths, which is a weekly thing. Like, this was not a short thing. All right, and so today we pick up, and Paul is in and near Ephesus. Uh, and something that's important for our story today is that Ephesus was known, uh, almost in a way, to kind of be like the capital of magic, all right, this isn't something that uh, we always know just by reading scripture, but we can see this now. It's going to make sense. When you look at history books, though, there is a ton of different things. They would talk about uh, scrolls of Ephesus, and that was just kind of something they would actually refer to magic incantations and things like that. Uh, Ephesus was a, a, a capital of this. It was known uh, where magicians would work. They would practice with spells. Uh, there was demonic activity that was happening, fortune-telling, all sorts of these things. And this matters because it helps us understand uh, why some of what was happening at the beginning, I think, was happening. So, verse 11, it had said this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illness were cured, and the evil spirits left them. 
Now, I've read this, and this has always been unique to me. Maybe you find yourself in a similar spot. Uh, The closest that we have to something like this anywhere else in Scripture is probably when when, uh, the lady reaches out and touches Jesus's jacket, his his cloak, his, his whatever, and through that, she's healed. But this is kind of a first that we, we see this. Like basically handkerchiefs, like, okay, so like Paul sneezed and then they're like, oh, quickly, take this before the germs disappear. I, I, don't, I don't No, Like it, it's just kind of this, you read this and you're like, wow, that's, I haven't seen that before. And if we don't understand the background of this city, I think you could read these verses and get a, a mental picture of, of something that's skewed and incorrect. You know, you almost could, could get this mental picture of, you know, the TV infomercials of people selling holy water from the River Jordan and shipping it over here and doing this and, and so-and-so, you know, prayed over this thing and we're going to send it to you for two payments of $19.99 and just wait, we'll double it, you know. And like you, you can get that type of image when you read this, but that's not at all what's happening here. The key to this verse is that It starts with God did extraordinary miracles. God did miracles. Not Paul. Not Paul's used Kleenex. God did extraordinary miracles. And he did them through Paul. We also are not told whether or not Paul was actually sending these things out or not. Or if people were just kind of running up and they're like, wow, I saw Paul was working on his tents and he used this cloth to wipe sweat. Man, I I have a friend. They they need to be healed. I'm going to... I don't think I can get Paul there, but I can at least take this and I can get it there. And I think that matters because what we see is this desperation and faith that people have. And I think that's what matters. It's the same desperation that caused that woman to push through the crowd, even though she was unclean and had all these issues, and reach out and touch him. That desperation matters. And and we don't really have a whole lot of background on this. But as I read this, that's where I have kind of landed on this. I look at this. People have this desperation for God and his presence. So much so that they would grab an apron. They would grab a handkerchief. Whatever it could be. We need to remember this city is used to seeing shows of power through magic and sorcery and demonic power. So it makes sense that God would show up in an equal and greater force in this situation. I've had a lot of conversations with people that wonder why uh, we don't see healing and miracles today always in the same way that we do in Scripture. Now, I don't think that's always the case. I think we just, we maybe aren't interacting with that. But I will say this, this is more from an experience standpoint that as I have traveled to other areas of the world, places that have a desperation, places that are more open to spiritual activity, whether that means they have their own gods that they worship or not, but they just are open to all of those things, I have seen God move in different ways in those areas. And I think that we have some of that with this city that's happening here. And I, I think it's an interesting piece for us to, to look at this and to see that God is working in this miraculous way. Uh, and many times, I think, in, in those other places uh, where I have seen people be healed, like it's the same places where there's lots of demonic and spiritual activity happening. Now, as a society and culture, we have sort of dismissed the idea of the miraculous as a whole. We have found and, and learned other ways to help somebody who is sick. We don't have the desperation necessarily that if God doesn't heal them, we don't know what's going to happen. Because we actually usually don't turn to God right away. We have have modern medicine and hospitals and all sorts of ways to make people better. 
All right, now don't misunderstand me here. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. And I believe that God has given that to us and that God has inspired people to find these things. That is not, I, I am in no way saying stop going to the doctor or stop calling 911, just pray. Like that's not what it is. But we have to, we have to realize this tension that we do not have the desperation that even right now other countries do. I mean, if you get sick with something here that you can go to the doctor and they prescribe you something and take care of it, there's other spots in the world right now. I mean, you're, you're lucky to get ibuprofen, and, and that's what it is. Hopefully this works. My sister's a pharmacist, and she talks about this. She has traveled on medical missions trips, and she's like, there, there's medications that are used in other countries for things that we absolutely don't use it for because we have better medications for that. But there, they only have these few medications available to them. It's like, well, we might as well give you this one. It might work. Like, there, there's a different level of desperation that comes with that. When someone gets sick and you don't know what you're going to do. And I think that's what we see here at the beginning, this desperation. Instead of having a plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, it's, God, we need you. We need you. I think all that to say that when a place seems to already have an active spiritual atmosphere, it seems that God moves in a more public way. Or at minimum, it is more easily noticed because they are already used to looking for and seeing that done. All right, so these crazy healings, these, this, this first little bit that we read there, and it's like, wow, that's, we haven't seen that before. I think in some ways related to the fact that this city already had a large occult and spiritual presence. So with this culture in Ephesus, you now have people who travel around and are essentially exorcists. Okay, and this Jewish family or this group, uh, they travel and they cast out demons and evil spirits. Uh, and many things surrounding occult practices and magic have a lot to do with like the words that you would say or the rhythm or the cadence of how you would say it uh, and almost these like specific little spells. This would be really common for people here. All right, and it appears that this group, the sons of Siva, have a little of that mixed into what they're doing here. And it was known in the ancient world that, that the name of God, Yahweh, was not spoken by anybody. Like the high priest was allowed to speak the name, and it was like one time in a very specific spot, very specific service. They did not speak the name. So they, they knew that there was something in the name of this. And so you have these guys coming, and they're like, well, you know what? Remember that Jesus guy? He cast out a lot of demons. All the demons listened to him. I wonder if we start adding his name in to what we say, if that'll make a difference. And you know what? Actually, right now, I keep hearing about this guy, Paul. He's going around, and he's preaching about Jesus. So let's throw his name in there, too. And it's just kind of this, you can see this idea of, like, they have this way of approaching it. And now they want to take something in name and throw it in there. So this group of Jewish men, not Christians, is starting to use the name of Jesus as they do this. So they're fighting demons and they, they have picked up the weapons of, of Jesus and Paul to do it. It's basically their thought. The problem is this. Jesus isn't a weapon that you can wield. All right, like I'm going to say that again because I think we need to like, this needs to sink in for us. Jesus isn't a weapon that we can wield. Jesus isn't something that's in our tool belt that when we have a difficult time, we just speak his name and call on him and everything's going to be okay. That, that's us trying to use 
him. We have that backwards. We do not use Jesus. He uses us. Jesus is a king that you submit to, and the Holy Spirit works through you. Remember, this started with saying God did miracles through Paul, not Paul used God and his powers to do miracles. And when the sons of Siva try to use Jesus and Paul's name for their own plan and their own mission, it backfires terribly and almost costs them their lives. And the statement that the demon makes to them here is, is important. I want to put it to us today. The evil spirit says this in response to them. Jesus I know, Paul I know about. Who are you? Who are you? Could you imagine this exchange? Like how terrifying that moment would have to be? I would really love if scripture would expound on what happened to these seven sons of Siva following this. Did they just abandon that altogether or were they like, wow, there's something there. Like, I mean, because the demon recognizes, I, I know Jesus. I know about Paul. Who are you? The power doesn't reside in empty words. It resides in the risen and victorious person of Jesus. And he has promised us that the same power that's in him can reside in us. That doesn't mean that we get to use it however we want. All right? When a landlord rents an apartment or a house to somebody, they don't get to decide every single decision for that person. They don't get to control them. And I think sometimes we think of Jesus in that way if we aren't careful. If Jesus resides in me, if, if God is accessible to me, if the Holy Spirit is guiding me, is leading me, I think we can easily over-exaggerate the me in that. And I think that we need, to be, we need to be careful with that. Like, we are a conduit of his power. We don't get to control things necessarily. I read through the Sons of Siva and I feel like it describes so many people today in the way that we interact with God. That if I just say the right things, if I just use uh, the name of Jesus, I, I can be victorious in my life. All right, and that's not the picture that we're given. And I don't want to, this is always a fine line, I don't want to diminish the fact that, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. All right, there, there's a tension, I want to acknowledge that there's a tension here to be managed of this idea that we have Jesus, we have the power of the risen Savior. But what does that actually look like in our life of how we, how we submit to it? Not how we use it, how we submit to it. Jesus isn't some incantation that we can throw in at the end of a prayer and make everything work out the way that we want it to. I think just like how there's a spiritual world depicted in this passage. Like, there's a spiritual world today. And we may not see it. We may not see it in the same way. By that, I mean, it, we, we just maybe don't see it play out publicly like this. It isn't on display for all to see, but that doesn't mean that it isn't there. One of Satan's biggest weapons today is the fact that so many people believe that he doesn't exist. If that's his biggest weapon, why on earth would he jeopardize that? by going around and attacking a single person publicly, far stronger. And if this attack is happening behind the scenes, I can't help but wonder what type of response would I get in this situation if I actually interacted in a situation like this.
I know Jesus. I've heard about Paul. Who are you? And I think that question comes back to who have you spent time with? Have you spent time with Jesus? Have you spent time with Jesus in a way that in that moment, it's not you even interacting, it's him. I think that's what we see, is that these sons of Siva, they, there was no presence of Jesus in them. It was just them. Jesus was a name, was a word to them. I think this, when I read this, it brings to mind the passage at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. This long discourse, he says this at the end about being a true disciple. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there's more to it than just a one-time event. There's more to it than just repeating a prayer. There's something about spending time, an abundant amount of time, in his presence. An abundant amount of time. Calling on his name is a daily task. It's something we wake up every single morning and we call on his name. And then after we call on his name, we stop and we listen. Why don't we stand together as we get ready to close? This is a, a unique passage in the middle of Paul's journey. Uh, but I, I just really felt like there was something in this for us today. And I think that every person in this room, you might be in different spots today. And that's fine. I know we aren't all in the same place. And God is working in different areas. But I think there's a few things for us to pull out of here today. And, and the first one, I, I do want to go back to Paul and Barnabas and just say this. Like, for some of you, what, what you need to hear today was the, the brief little spot that I summarized and then skipped over. That we see two incredibly strong believers and leaders in the church that disagree. All right, first off, it's a little refreshing to know that we don't always have to agree on everything. I think Paul and Barnabas, going their separate ways, both continued to do what God was asking them to do. There are times where we can disagree and we can, we can walk different directions and be okay with that. But I think what you see in that moment is, is not actually the interaction between Paul and Barnabas, but Paul and having these feelings, whether they are, are validated or not, towards John Mark. And now over the next letters that Paul writes, we slowly see John Mark kind of start to show up again in some of those. And at the very last one, Paul is probably in Rome as he's writing it, on death row, waiting to be killed. And he says, hey, send John Mark. 
I want to see him. He's valuable to me. And I just, I, I love the heart that you see there. The end of that whole letter from Paul is all talking about people. People that he loves, people that have hurt him, people that uh, he's reconciled with, all sorts of different people. At the end of the day, we have people. That, that's, that's our life. And they'll know us by our love. I want to challenge, I think there's people in this room, and, and if this is you, you probably know who you are, and you're like, all right, hurry up and move on. I'm done with this. You, you have someone in your life that you need to deal with, you need to reconcile with. All right, and there, there are parts of that that are your job, and there are parts that you absolutely cannot force on somebody else. But have you done your part in reconciling with somebody? Because that matters. I think for, for the rest of us, I want to challenge us with this. When we talk about Jesus, when we call on his name, when we share what he's doing in our life, like how often do we find ourselves with empty words? How often is Jesus something that is just tacked on to the rest of our life? Instead of being like absolutely everything, every, every decision I make, everything I do is all through him. When I wake up in the morning, I am desperate for his presence in my life because I can't make it through the day without him. Is, is that how we are living? Or is there an afterthought that kind of gets tacked on at the end of, uh, of whatever the incantation of life for you is? Because when push comes to shove and when things get difficult and you're faced in a situation like the sons of Siva were, you don't want to be standing there alone like they were. You're going to get beat up and run away naked. It's biblical apparently. <laughs> you want to be standing there. You know, and, and if Paul were... I'm going to go out and, and make my own thing here. If Paul were standing there instead of the sons of Siva, even though this spirit's like, I know about Paul, in that moment, Paul would have not even been on the radar because in that moment, if he's standing there looking at Paul, Paul was in such a place where that spirit's interacting with Jesus, not Paul. And like our life, when we go throughout the day, when people interact with us, are they interacting with you? And you have this little title of like Jesus follower, Christian? Or are they interacting to the best of your ability with Jesus? And I think that's, we need, to, we need to find ourselves in a spot where we really, we are so desperate for Jesus and his presence that that's what people are interacting with. So I want to do this. I want to just close us in prayer. I want to pray that we will surrender our lives in a way this week that maybe we haven't in a while. That surrender is a daily thing. It's not a one-time thing you do. This is a daily task for us. God, I pray that 
if we have been living our life in a way where you are just kind of tacked on to everything else. And this idea of being a Christian and having you in our life really is just this this empty shell and it's not actually there. It's not something uh, that we are desperate for. God, that you would just convict us right now in this moment. God, that this week we would do whatever it takes to have more of your presence in our life. God, this, this image of people grabbing aprons and handkerchiefs from Paul because they were desperate. I, w- I want that type of desperation in my life. And God, I don't want to face this on my own. I need you. I need your presence every step of the way. God, we pray for those in the room that they have relationships that they need to reconcile. God, the hurt and the pain that it's going to bring up as they go through this process. God, let us just honor you as we do those things. And Jesus, we pray that this week, as we interact with people, that they would feel your presence and not ours. God, that they would be changed by that. Lord, we ask this in your name.